This podcast is brought to you by the University of Aberdeen. Hello, and a very warm welcome to the Culture in Everyday Life podcast, produced by the Elphinstone Institute at the University of Aberdeen. The Elphinstone Institute is a centre for the study of ethnology, folklore and ethnomusicology, with a research and public engagement remit covering the North East and North of Scotland. Through interaction with researchers and practitioners, this podcast explores cultural phenomena in everyday life. Hello and welcome all to, I think, our last uh, regularly scheduled uh, public talk of the year. Um, before you go, I would ask you maybe to grab one of these programs for the May Festival, at which we have a lot of interesting events to do with Northeast culture. We have our traveler encampment, we have the David Toulmin Prize, um, and a number of other events related to Northeast culture. So please take one of these programs with you. They're there on the piano as you go out. Um, and without further ado, I shall introduce Donald Smith, uh, the redoubtable Donald Smith. Um, the director of Traditional Arts and Culture Scotland and a storyteller and a scholar and man about town of the Arts and Culture of Scotland. Uh, so here we go, Donald. Thank you, thank you very much. Hi everybody, nice to be here this evening. And um, I just, I would like this evening in uh, the while I have to kind of open a door into what I think is almost a kind of hidden or half-hidden chamber of Northeast culture, uh, which is the older traditions of drama. And it's really, it's, it's fascinating, it's lovely, it's extraordinary, it's very, very rich. And uh, it, it, I, I hope that we'll, we'll have some enjoyment in doing that. And I think this is, in my experience, this is not untypical of the Northeast. You have these hidden half chambers. So I did a lot of work. I researched the book The Pilgrim Guide to Scotland, looking at old pilgrim routes and sites. Again, Northeast Scotland, it's just absolutely saturated in this stuff. But do people make much of it? Not really. It's, you know, it's that Northeast thing. It's kind of there, you know. So, um, <coughs> I want to um, touch on this drama thing, and I'm going to go about this to be a little bit of a narrative in it, just looking at some of the developments, and then I'll draw out a couple of kind of overall ideas, just to sum up, that are interesting, that uh, are, are good perhaps to explore and think about in relation to this material. And then finally, maybe, and maybe that's getting into the discussion bit to say, does this still have any relevance for the Northeast and or further afield? And if so, what might that relevance be? And that's where you might help me. I don't necessarily intend to recruit everybody to cross-dressing in the course of this uh, talk, but there is quite a bit of (laughs) cross-dressing, which is where the blonde wig Maid Marian comes from. So I want to start by going to a little, a lovely, excellent little anthology actually, uh, which seeks to encompass the heyday of Scotland in the Renaissance and late medieval period. 
And this was put together by Gregory Smith, who was a pioneering scholar of Scots literature from Queen's University. And I, I think he was here in Aberdeen for a spell. I might be wrong about that. And he puts together this anthology in which Aberdeen plays a, a good part in the central flowering of Scotland's Renaissance. And uh, <coughs> one of the, the, the things that, that catch your eye immediately is what he describes as an old lovable custom in the borough. Now that is a translation, right, of a phrase that you'll be hearing several times this evening from the borough records of Aberdeen, ye old lovable consuetude and right of ye borough, right, consuetude, uh, Latin for custom, and right here we're meaning R-I-T-E, a ceremony, an old lovable custom and ceremony of the borough. So here's one of them. It was found by the old lovable custom and right of the borough that in the honour of God and the Blessed Virgin Mary, the craftsmen of the same, in their best array, kept and adorned the procession on Candlemas Day yearly. Which old and lovable custom the provost, baileys and council rightly advised, ratified and approved, and moreover statute and ordained that the said craftsmen and their successors shall perpetually in time to come observe and keep the said procession as honourably as they can. And they shall in order to the offering in the play pass two and two together. Uh, uh, this is a fascinating level of detail for a town council minute about a community arts event, right? It gets better. They shall pass two and two together, socially. First, the fleshers, barbers, bakers, shoemakers, skinners, coopers, wrights, hatmakers and bonnet makers together. Then, the fullers, dyers, weavers, tailors, goldsmiths, blacksmiths and hammermen and the craftsmen shall furnish the pageants. The shoemakers, the messenger, the weavers and fullers, Simeon, uh, the smiths and goldsmiths, the three kings of Cologne, the dyers, the emperor, etc. The tailors, Our Lady, St. Bride and St. Helen. And the skinners, the two bishops. We'll hear more about them later, who on earth these two bishops are. And two of each craft to pass with the pageant that they furnish to keep their gear. And if any person happen to fail and break any point before written and be convicted thereof, he shall pay 40 shillings to St. Nicholas' work. That isn't St. Young Nicholas here. <laughs> this is to keeping St. Nicholas Kirk upright. And the Baileys unlaw unforgiven, right? So you have to do it. Now, um, Candlemas... Uh, 2nd of February uh, is the feast of the purification of the Virgin. This is in uh, the New Testament when uh, Mary goes to the temple uh, for the, the ritual of purification after the six-week period after the birth of the child, according to the Jewish law, and there's a thank offering. And there's a wonderful storytelling thing where Simeon comes in and all the different uh, characters, old Anna in the temple, it's a wonderful bit of storytelling. But the point is that seasonally, the 1st of February in Scotland was St Bride's Day. 
Okay, uh, behind whom is the figure of Breach, the the Celtic goddess of the spring, and uh, it is in no way coincidental that these two uh, things conjoin. And there we are, uh, Our Lady St Bride and St Helen. And if anybody thinks that Irish Celtic saints tradition is not relevant to the northeast. You, you have to get out there and visit all these old churches up and down because there are Irish Celtic dedications en masse in Aberdeenshire. So uh, this is very fascinating, but I mean, it gets even more interesting in a sense because the minute, the council minute, also goes on to detail how many people each of the guilds is supposed to provide for the drama. So it describes, you know, the smiths and the hammermen are to provide the three kings of Cologne, the tailors, Our Lady St. Bride, St. Helen, Joseph, and as many squires as they may. So there's a, to be a pile of kind of attendants as well to go in this uh, procession. Uh, the skinners, two bishops and four angels, the weavers and fullers, Simeon and his disciples, uh, the fleshers, two or four madmen, <laughs> One, the mind boggles uh, the brethren of the guild knights in harness and squires honestly arrayed and then finally it's like it, you know it's, it's like a set of production notes um, bakers the minstrels the bakers are responsible for the music now um, to my mind that is it, it's quite extraordinary. It's quite extraordinary, and I, I'm going to push that door open further in a minute. But if you think this is some kind of one-off flash in the pan, the council does this big thing for Candlemas that I referred incidentally to 1505, the specific date and year. And we also have, from 1511, <coughs> the Scottish medieval poet William Dunbar's description of the royal entry of James IV's queen, so that's the young Margaret of England, the thistle and the marriage of the thistle and the rose, she comes to Aberdeen, okay? And um, <coughs> this is how Dunbar describes the arrival of the queen, the welcome of the queen in Aberdeen. And I'm, I'm hoping at the end of this journey to come back in 1580 to the Aberdeen welcome to King James VI, the new Protestant king in, in 1580. And first her met the burghers of the town, richly arrayed as became them to be, of whom they chose out four men of renown in gowns of velvet, young, able and lusty, to bear the pall of velvet cramacy, a sort of ceremonial kind of, you know, a cover. Above her head, as the custom had been, great was the sound of the artillery, be blithe and blissful, borough of Aberdeen. A fair procession met her at the port, that's the gate, in a cap of gold and silk full pleasantly, with many a fear to sport, received her on the street lustily, where first the salutation honourably of the sweet virgin goodly might be seen, the sound of minstrels blowing to the sky, be blithe and blissful, borough of Aberdeen. And then they describe the play scene the drama scenes that are played in the street. And sign thou cause the Orient King is three, offer to Christ, 
gold, scents and myrrh with all humility. Shine how an angel with sword of violence forth of the joy of paradise put clean Adam and Eve for disobedience. They're all, you're all sinners, you're damned to hell. Nonetheless, be blithe and blissful, borough of Aberdeen. And then, and sign the Bruce, Robert the Bruce, that ever was bold in steward, thou gart as Roy, come riding under crown. So that's still, you can still see that in Aberdeen, Robert the Bruce statue. The noble stewards, be blithe and blissful, borough of Aberdeen. Then came four and twenty maidens young, all clad in green of marvellous beauty, with hair detresset as threads of gold did hang, etc., etc. Um, the streets were all hung with tapestry, great was the press of people about, and pleasant pageants played prettily. The regions all did to their lady lout, who was convoyed with a royal rout of great barons and lusty ladies, Welcome our Queen, the Commons gave a shout. Be blithe and blissful, borough of Aberdeen. So this is what they call a joyful entry. You know, a ceremonial welcome to the monarch. And Aberdeen did not stint. And an essential part of the process was the dramatic pageants and ceremonial played in the street as part of the welcome, um, which was able to be done because... Aberdeen had this uh, strong tradition of civic theatre, of civic community drama. That's the only way you can describe this. And now let's just dig into that bit. Now, why does this happen in the late medieval <coughs> period? <coughs> well, it, very interestingly, Aberdeen, the Diocese of Aberdeen, also records one of the earliest attacks on pagan games and shameful um, goings-on in churchyards, right, in in the 13th century, in the 1200s. And that is a fascinating glimpse into a period for which we have so little evidence or record but you, what you can do is join that up with the material evidence of the importance of the parish churchyards across Aberdeenshire and where you can see that many of those churches are positioned in older sites, on older religious sites, and that that tradition of there being games, contests, archery, um, I, how the mind encompasses everything that could be a shameful Ludi game, you know, um, encouraging lasciviousness, the, the document says, you know, so the mind can roam. But um, that the, the, the sites of the churches and the churchyards remained focuses of all these communal and festival, festival activities, which might have had an origin going back hundreds and hundreds of years into pre-Christian tradition. So that in itself is a very fascinating thing that you can look at the the physical evidence and this very slender uh, documentary evidence. But what then essentially happens is, uh, if you can't beat them, join them, right? So gradually, the medieval church evolved a, a kind of policy or approach that sought to incorporate and to a degree influence and control the popular festivals of the people. So what you get is a merging 
of what you could describe as a genuine folk tradition, about which we know very little, with an actual active kind of church policy of saying, well, we want to encompass this community thing, you know, so let's actually let's actually organise these processions and these plays. So obviously that didn't happen like that. It evolved and developed. And the key point is that when you, and I'm, I'll, I'll illustrate uh, <laughs> that um, from the, the detailed, detailed records of all this, the council is the instrument of, um, I mean, almost enforcing this pattern of activity in which the town, uh, through uh, the, the town council, the guilds, so all the working people of the town, all the trades and guilds and crafts are involved, and the church is involved. And they all come together in order to underpin these key uh, ceremonies and festivals with this street theatre stuff very much at the centre of it. And it's, it's centred, the, the central kind of connecting feature of it is St Nicholas, the patron saint of Aberdeen. And you actually now, St Nicholas, probably the patron saint of Aberdeen because he is the saint of sailors and of shipwrecked mariners. So there's kind of an appropriateness to the port of Aberdeen. But honestly, the St Nicholas thing is, it's serious. If people think now, oh, well, it's a kind of nominal thing, you know, St Nicholas, patron saint of Aberdeen. It, when you actually go through this stuff, that it's, it's the St Nicholas theme that kind of holds it together. And there are four key points in the year where all this is going on, right? There are two festivals where the church side of it are quite strongly emphasised. Candlemas, although as I've described that, very connected with the, um, the sort of beginning of spring uh, Feast of Bride. And then the Feast of Corpus Christi on the 20th of June. Now that was a 16th century innovation in the Catholic Church, uh, at that time as it were, the Universal Church where, again, it was a deliberate policy to take religion out of the churches into the streets. And what they did was they took the, uh, the sacred host, the body and blood of Christ, as it were, the reserved sacrament was taken out of the churches and paraded through the streets with a huge procession and plays, right? So 20th June, very interesting again. It's, it's midsummer, right? And then there were two more major seasonal festivals that were huge in Aberdeen, both uh, strongly connected in their presentation and articulation with the cult of Nicholas, but these are much more folk festivals. And um, they were in May, the May Day festivals, but they weren't just restricted to the 1st of May, it spilled through May, and here you are still having a May festival in Aberdeen. I just hope there's not going to be any shameful, loody and lascivious goings-on in that festival, Tom. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> and then the other is, is the Christmas period. Now, here's the fascinating thing. The traditional, in Western church, the Feast of St Nicholas is the 6th of December, Right. But it kind of seems that the St Nicholas season got going on the 6th of December, then intensified as Yule, midwinter, 
uh, came into thing and was then kind of collated with the Feast of the Holy Innocents on 28th December, where all the schools were in holiday and the kids got up to no good as part of all this, and continued essentially until Epiphany on the 6th of January. Now, what you have again there is this collation of the traditional seasonal character with the Christian calendar. And the expression of that philosophy was worked out through these processions, pageants and plays. Now, the other thing that will come out, um, just as, as I take through a few examples of this, is that for reasons that I think we can understand, the detail that we have in these official records about the two religiously orientated festivals is much greater than the more folk-orientated stuff, right? It's not because it's not mentioned and covered, but the detail about Corpus Christi and Candlemas is, is extraordinary. But once we get to May, May Day and uh, December, um, it becomes a bit more coy. And coy is the word because it's not until post-Reformation disapproval comes in that it begins to spill out what actually has been going on. Okay? So there are some juicy bits coming. Don't despair, right? <coughs> So um, we've touched on, I've uh, done that kind of extract from 15.5 about the, um, the, the Candlemas. Now, the, ca- the, the constant reference in detail to this Candlemas thing in the Council Minutes, because what happens is they, they have the thing, they set up. Now, everybody is supposed to, the different guilds are supposed to contribute to the cost of the candles, Right now, imagine St Nicholas Church, the scale of it, right? And I mean, it's not much bigger now than it was then. You've got a dark season of the year. The aim was to illuminate the church in a blaze of golden light. That was a lot of candles. So there's a lot of reference to the specific, the amount of wax, the amount of candles, how everybody's supposed to contribute. And also, how everybody is supposed to take part in the procession, is supposed to pay their share of the costs and to take part. And when they don't, they're had up in front of the council and reproved. So there's just numerous about, you know, so-and-so is unforgiven because of the offence done at the Candlemas play for not appearing. And the two offences are, you know, they didn't... um, you know, so-and-so fine because he keep it not your procession of Candlemas play. Slight cyclic as other craftsmen did. There's wonderful pro-Scots in here, by the way. This counts a minute. This is pro-Scots. If the Northeast Bourd in Scots needs models of what Scots pros, go to the Aberdeen Council records. And then the other offence is what they call uh, offence done to ye situationy of the Candlemas plate. Now, what they mean there is the order of the procession. There were arguments about what, what the order should be, who should go where. And then there was, you know, people were reproved for not being in the correct position in this uh, uh, festival, okay? And um, there's a fascinating uh, 
<coughs> one here as well, um, which is quite interesting. You see, where uh, because they're laying down the law, they say what people have failed to do, they failed to furnish their parts and badges of the same. So um, there's this detailed description that each guild is supposed not just to be in this procession, but to bring banners and to contribute to what are described as the pageants. Now, there's a very interesting question there, which medieval drama, you know, are we talking here about almost like a movable pageant? So in some of the English uh, town traditions, they actually had these wagons which were moved along with the, the scene. Possibly that happened in Aberdeen. There's no physical evidence of it. Or was a pageant something that happened en route in the procession on a fixed position, either in the church in Candlemas or at Corpus Christi out in the town in the streets. There would be certain locations at crossroads, at the market cross, where particular scenes or pageants would be played. Okay, so um, <coughs> similarly, uh, Corpus Christi, huge amount of detail about uh, what everybody's supposed to do, about the procession, about how everybody should be part of it, according to you, for you uh, conform to you old, lovable, consuetous, and right of the borough. Yeah? You know, so the, this is it. Now, that's a very interesting phrase, if you think about it for a minute. This is not a law. There's no law that says you should take part in it. Yet people are fined and reproved for not taking part in it. And the authority is tradition. The old, lovable, custom and right of the borough. It's, it's all founded on a sense of tradition. I think that in itself is a, a whole sort of fascinating ballgame. Right, and here we go. The crafts are charged to furnish their pageants underwritten. The fleshers... St. Bastian and his tormentors. The barbers, St. Lawrence and his tormentors. The skinners, St. Stephen's tormentors. Yeah, so the big emphasis in this Corpus Christi about the martyrs. So I don't know, is there a lot of flagellation and whatever going on? I, I, I don't know. Um, the cordoners, St. Martin, the tailors. The coronation of Our Lady, right? The coronation of the Virgin. These are the scenes that they are to, to buy. Uh, the Listeris, that's the dyers. St. Nicholas, the story of St. Nicholas. And the Websters, the Weavers, St. John. The Baxters, St. George. And the Slaters and Coopers, the Resurrection. The Smiths and the Hammermen to furnish the bearers of the cross. So this is a mystery play. A full thing, uh, but not just uh, as the whole medieval thing. You see that in the art conflates the biblical. There's no, there's no line drawn between that's the biblical narrative and that's the narrative of the saints of the church. They're they're all in one in in that very detailed. We have no script unless one's lying somewhere in some old documentary records in Aberdeen archives. But, you know, you can see the, the comparability there of the, the scripts that do survive from the different uh, cycles. So, and again, we have uh, the issues of enforcement of those who don't turn up and don't play their part. 
they're, they are then ticked off and reproved. And uh, I won't go into the detail of it, but there's a corker of a row about the Corpus Christi procession because the Smiths, you know, if you want to have trouble, get a Smith, you know. But <laughs> the, the Smiths put themselves at the front of this procession in Corpus Christi 1553. And, and the row continues for a year and into 1554 because all these other crafts, you know, the Smiths went in the wrong part of the procession. Now, the, the issue here is, you know, I described that we're bearing the sacred host at the front, you know, with all the clergy and the banners, whatever. So presumably it was the position of greatest honour to be nearest the sacred host. So there was considerable debate and rivalry. And of course the debate centred on what was the custom? What was the correct tradition of the order? So the time comes of minutes become more and more detailed about who's to go where in this ruddy procession. Now, I, I just have to tell you that I, um, something in me kind of, uh, oh, responsible for that. I, I, I've, I've been involved through my work. There have been numerous gala day, May day, you know, I'm still in the May day committee for Edinburgh and Lothians and all that. And this is the meat and drink of these things. You know, where is everybody going to go in the procession? And who's going to be offended if the community choir is too near the pipe band? And, you know, I mean, this is, this is what's going on here, you know? Except it's kind of serious stuff. Okay, so let's turn to the two big, more folk orientated commemorations and festivals and wham we are right into the two critical figures the abbot of reason by which we mean unreason and the prior of bon accord now they seem to be a kind of double act at some points it seems like it's one person who has that overall title, but then it becomes clear or it develops as it's two people. And they're the people who are the kind of masters of ceremony who are responsible for organising these street processions and activities and games in as much as they can be organised, both in May and then in December. So they, they kind of have a year. Now, classically, in 1445, the council decided that they would stop paying them, right? This is a classic kind of Aberdeen decision, perhaps. I, I, I don't know. You, know, The council's still sort of working from this hymn sheet, I think. But um, so what I, 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 can, I can't be certain of this. We'd, we'd have to look at more competitive things. But I, I think that perhaps this was a situation where at one point professional jesters and street performers were hired to lead this stuff. And then the Aberdeen Council took the decision, no, what we will do is we will elect and appoint two of our own number, baileys and crafty, because, I mean, the mind boggles, you know, the, the convener of the Recreation Committee will be appointed the Lord of Misrule for the next year, you know? I mean, that seems to be the equivalent. And that seems to have an effect that uh, it comes, it becomes, uh, you know, very much a civic thing. 
There's no external professionalism in this. It's, it's, it's all the resources of the civic society, including the musicians and all the rest of it, are brought to bear. And also it, it, it causes problems and issues because these poor guys who, gets appoint, who get appointed to this thing sometimes have all kinds of difficulties actually getting other people to cooperate and do the business. And then, as I say, it, it will trickle out as we go through this uh, just what might be involved in some of what went on, particularly at the May 1, okay? So, anyway, um, and a fast, here's a fascinating wee, wee reference. 1497, 8th May. Um, the foresaid ye Alderman Baileys and Council, present for your time at ye... Now, I think this is a, a wrong transcription... Woman Hill, I think it's uh, Windmill Hill, at Windmill Hill. So Windmill Hill was where the Aberdeen Play Green was. The traditional playing green was in Windmill Hill, right? And uh, that's, that's the earliest reference that I know of to establishing that. But there's references later as, as late as the 1600s to the poor state of the play green on Windmill Hill. Um, so, um, uh, for upholding of you all lovable consuetude, honour, consolation and pleasure of this borough, like has been in times past, etc., and the appointed so-and-so-and-so-and-so conjunctly abbot and prior of Bon Accord. Now, um, what the, a phrase now begins to come in of what they call a riding. So it would seem that both in May and December, part of the, uh, the, the focus or content was around a processional riding of the streets, okay, with attendant pageants, banners, play activities as we went. And this seems to have happened on a number of occasions in May and then again on a, on a number of occasions in December with the build-up to Yule, okay? And uh, there's quite a lot of detail about the, um, the banners. Um, so uh, here, here, just here's a wee flavour. In honour of the glorious patron St Nicholas, all persons of Burgesses, neighbours of Burgesses and Burgess sons are to ride to um, decor, to ornament and decorate and honour the town in their array. Um, and everybody is to ride with the abbot and the prior of uh, Bon Accord and uh, if you don't do this, uh, they want to know why you're not turning out to take part, okay? And in addition, it's not just, you know, I'm bad, I know. You know, you, you turn out in proper costumes and banners and whatever. Uh, you know, it doesn't specify this. It's so frustrating, but it clearly says, you know, you're to turn out, but you're also to turn out in style, and ceremonial style for all this, okay? So, um, you know, usual stuff. Um, and then, then, 1517 seems to be the er earliest reference with no, um, no prior 
kind of discussion or intimation or whatever, suddenly, alongside the abbot of unreason and the prior of one accord, we have Robin Hood and Little John. Suddenly, Robin Hood and Little John are in the mix here. They don't appear to be replacing the abbot of reason and the prior, but they do get mentioned more often. And they're part of the ridings and the procession and all the rest of it. And extraordinarily, the same kind of minute says, if you don't turn out to ride with Robin Hood and Little John, you're, you know, you're in trouble. <laughs> you failed in your duty. You know, I mean, I, you couldn't sort of make it up in a kind of a way, could you, you know? And um, so uh, this goes on. This is this is very important, uh, and you can see from the references. And again, it's all unified by this idea that it's all part of the Saint Nicholas tradition, right? So even though we've got Robin Hood and Little John and more that's about to come. Uh, it's all contained within this idea. It's part of the civic tradition of uh, uh, St. Nicholas. And, um, but what clearly we have going on here is we have this mixture of, okay, so the business community, the crafts and whatever, but then you've got to imagine there's also the apprentices. Uh, there's the apprentices' girlfriends. There's, uh, you know, there's a whole kind of widening circle of participation around this, and it's all kind of seems to be contained in a harmonious whole until, all of a sudden, right? Instead of uh, the language of the lovable custom and right of the borough a note of critique comes in. 1553, April 1553, there is a criticism of the Lords of Bonacord because of the many great sumptuous and superfluous banqueting injuring the time uh, which is neither profitable nor godly. Now, uh, this is fascinating because what we're talking here is gluttony and drunkenness and probably a dose of lechery, okay? Now, the thing is, that must always have been part of the picture, okay? But suddenly, it becomes a focus of critique. And instead of the council minutes reflecting this wholesale endorsement of these traditions... A critical note comes in. But what is fascinating is that they try, and I would love to have been a fly on the wall at this meeting. <laughs> I would just love, because this time you've got to remember we've had a failed Lutheran Reformation in Scotland. We're now heading towards a Calvinist Reformation. It's not a majority supported thing in Aberdeen by any manner of means. So what the council clerk who drafted this, tries to do is maintain a distinction between this uh, sumptuous, excessive, you know, drinking and banqueting that obviously applies to some kind of recent development with ye cause principle and good institution 
in holding of the good tune, in gladness and blitheness, with dances, farces, plays and games. So we now actually get a description of what is the lovable tradition. Dance, games, farces, plays, that's good. That's what we want to keep going. We don't want this excess. We don't want all this drunkenness, you know. Union Street on a Saturday night. No, that's not good. We're, we're, we're holding for the, the lovable tradition. Now, that is extremely fascinating. And uh, what, of course, then happens is that this tension around these traditions grows. And it grows because in 1555... The Scottish government, in the shape of Mary of Guise, not a Protestant government, we hadn't had the Reformation yet, Mary of Guise banned the plays, the May revels and plays. And we have the proclamation by which she banned them, which is incorporated and grossed, as the technical term is, into the Aberdeen Council Minute saying, um, it is statute and ordained, no manner of person be chosen, Robin Hood or Little John, abbots of unreason, May Queen, neither in borough or in land, at any time to come, any provost, bailey and council who chooses such a personage as Robert Hood, Little John, abbot of unreason or May Queen, shall forfeit their freedom for the space of five years, etc., etc., fines. And the, the lovely bit, there's always a kind of gender issue here, um, anybody who makes perturbation, the women perturbers, <laughs> the perturbators, the female perturbators, shall be taken, handled, and put upon the cock stool of every borough or town. Right. <laughs> so there, now you know. Now, uh, of course, this was quite ineffective. And uh, even in Edinburgh, so at my place of work, right beside the old Nana boat, there was a huge riot. When they had to enforce this, there was a popular uprising against it with violence that, that was broadcast all over Europe. Now, Aberdeen was in a more difficult situation because basically the, the majority view was to keep going. They wanted to keep going, right? And um, they then... Uh, started 1562 they started under pressure by this time we've had the Protestant Reformation in 1560 to have to bring people to book for continuing what was really the old lovable custom but in doing that we learn more about some of the things that happened so for example 4th May 1562 the said day John Kello Bellman was accused for passing through the town with the handbell by open voice to convene the Hale community to go to the wood to bring in summer upon your first Sunday of May, contravening the acts and statutes of the Queen's Grace and the Lords of Council. So that is the first mention that part of the Aberdeen custom was, which is recorded in Edinburgh, but on the morning of the first May, you went out to the woods. So this is when you washed your face in the dew and you cut the first green boughs and bore them back into the town. And that's probably the origin of the maple, is these green boughs for circular dances. And of course, 
Merry Hell then broke loose with Street, and that's when the, the Robin Hood and Maid Marian, blonde wigs and the whole uh, raft went on, you know. So suddenly, now I don't believe that what we're seeing suddenly is a different um, uh, happening from what had happened before. What we're actually hearing is all the different dimensions of what went on. So yes, there was an official procession with pageants and things, but there was all these popular traditions going on as well. And then there's another reference uh, saying that none of them take upon hand to make with tambourine, with tavern playing on pipe or fiddle uh, and to convene for the choosing of Robin Hood and Little John and the Abbot of Reason. But they must stick to the statutes of the Parliament and not make any tumult, schism or convention, any gathering. So Obviously, there's this popular push to keep the whole thing going, to keep having Robin Hood and Little John and, and, and the May Queen. And uh, in 1565, the poor provost is summoned down to Edinburgh to have the riot act read for the enormities of what is going on in Aberdeen. That's the word, the enormities. <laughs> And the poor provost has to come back and read this letter from Mary, Queen of Scots now. Uh, but the way, well, the, the reason that the um, the reason that this enforcement began under Mary of Guise was that these popular festival occasions were being utilised by Protestant protesters and riots to stir up disorder, and that's why. So this. A sort of movement, as it were, to start controlling these things was not solely a Protestant versus a Catholic issue. It was an issue about um, <coughs> social order. <coughs> and, and in particular, I think, a breakdown now of the relationship of the, the civic, the church, and the popular tradition. They begin to divide. Uh, you know, and that that's reflected in a whole load of you know, um, and again it becomes interesting because it's describing more and more fully uh, what what had been um, going on. So I'll I'll flick on just finally now um, the the last bit of this is then um, there's. There's a strong surviving aspect that's particularly evident in Aberdeen where as all this pressure, and by the 1570s you've got Protestant regions, you've got quite a hard-line Protestant government in Scotland. The young Mary's in exile, the young James is a minor, and you know you have the Earl of Murray and the Earl of Morton and all this hard-line Protestants in charge of the government. But the school, the grammar school, is very resistant to abandoning the popular tradition of the Christmas, the Yule games. So what appears to have happened is that the schoolboys maintained a tradition of appointing a boy bishop, right? Uh, which in some way, and this is interesting because the Galatians plays were kept going by the kids after the Canadal thing got the squeeze, and uh, so it seems that there was a very strong move in Aberdeen 
for the kids, the high school kids, to keep this thing going. And their opportunity came by insisting on these uh, customs and traditions and games happening after Christmas. So this is now St Nicholas associated with the Feast of the Holy Innocents on the 20th of December. It uh, was a chance for the schools to have a good old holiday. And then the council began to crack down on that under pressure for the government. And there's a whole ongoing to and fro about that, which I you need to go into the school records to completely understand uh, the ins and outs of it. And uh, But by the time we get to the mid to late 1570s, the language has become uh, about superstitious festival days. The lovable custom of the borough has been replaced by superstitious festival days. Does that mean that it has ended? No. And I just want to, to uh, sort of finish on this and then a, a wee summary thing. We then begin to pile up records that are coming from the new Protestant Kirk sessions uh, lambasting these folk game traditions that are obviously still, uh, you know, in full flight. So, um, admonition given to the master of the Sang school to give no play or privilege to scholars in the days dedicated to superstition and papistry. So that's the crackdown on these holidays and the boy bishop. Fourteen women charged for playing, dancing and singing of filthy carols on Yule Day. At even, and on Sunday. It's only 1570. Well, this is all in Aberdeen, you know, I hasten to add. Um, and uh, a woman fined for the abusing of herself in of, of clothing herself with men's clothes at the wake of George Elmsley's. Now, that's interesting that some of this stuff went on at wakes. At wakes. I saw some of this uh, parting singing and guising. Several women convicted as dancers in men's clothes under silence of night. So this is uh, whatever. Um, delation given against some young men and young women of this city for dancing through the town together. The, uh, the young men being clad in women's apparel, which is a compted abomination by the law of God and the young women for dancing openly with them through the streets with masks on their faces, thereby passing the bounds of modesty and shamefastness, which ought to be in young women, namely in a reformed city. <laughs> How could this stuff be going on in Aberdeen, you know? We were now a godly town, you know? And if any man or woman be convict in the like monstrous behaviour in time coming, to wit, other men dancing in women's apparel, or women in men's apparel, or yet if women be found dancing publicly through the streets, mask it and disguise it in sick a wanton and unchaste form, in company with men, that the doers shall pay a pecunial penalty to the poor, according to the modification of the session. 
So, um, you know, and it goes, it goes on. And in 1605, five men accuse it of being fosterers of superstition and going through the town masked and dancing with bells on Yule Day late at night. So, um, what the... Um, and at 69, William Stuart Fiddler warned to refrain from his wanted superstition in playing and singing the Sundays of May in the morning. And there you get the, uh, that idea, which is back, that the, the whole procession uh, uh, went out on every Sunday in May. There was procession and games through the town as part of the May celebrations. So you've come full circle. However, uh, slightly, I won't get into the ether of it. To my mind, there's a slightly self-justificatory uh, lengthy explanation that in 1580 King James VI comes for the first time to Aberdeen and the council lays on the full ceremonious fig games, pageants three, it costs 3,000 pounds or guineas or something <coughs> I, you could have gone to back to that Dunbar poem and they did the full fig of a joyous entry in 1580 and you wonder, was that because they sensed, you know, the wind was moving a bit? James was going to be a bit more... James loved the theatre. He loved Paz Weber. So was there a kind of whatever? Or was that the council kind of... And as I say, it's, it's, it's quite costly. They go around, you know, we're doing this because this is the old custom. This is what was done before. So again, you know, the old description, the plays at the gate, the wine and the fountain, everything that was to be done, it was all to be done again in the old lovable custom. Okay, so um, I just want uh, to finish by saying there's, there's several interesting kind of things, I think, that are worthy of thinking about and exploring in this. There's this whole business of how this whole uh, church civic thing evolved with connections to older, quote, paganism, unquote, to, uh, and therefore you look at the seasons and festivals that were chosen, Candlemas, May Day, Corpus Christi, and the Yule St. Nicholas uh, stuff. And uh, clearly there's such a strong relationship in all of these between older seasonal traditions and customs and what the church was doing. And um, that those were reflected in the nature of the performances, the writings, the processions, the pageants. Uh, again, um, there's, there's, I think, a very fascinating thing to try and explore that in more detail. Uh, can we nail more precisely some of what was going on there? Uh, dancing, pageants, plays, farces, farces. Uh, we survived, there's a, a William Dunbar um, in Crying of the Play, in Lindsay's Satire of the Three Estates. Uh, there's a, a farce, an interlude farce. Uh, which, I mean, I think we're pretty close there. Uh, can we, though, specifically tie any of those to Aberdeen? I'm not sure. Um, there's this fascinating, I think, you know, are these really folk plays? I mean, if the whole thing is to a degree organised by the church, is, where's the folk element in it? Yet, yeah, actually, when we begin to, or organised by the council and the church, 
when we begin to see the further information that develops as the thing becomes more controversial and we can learn more, we can clearly see there is a folk dimension. It's like it's, it's some kind of civic and folk thing combined. And then we see a development where that relationship becomes contentious, that some of this masking and disguising becomes dissident. Uh, you know, it's consciously dissident and there's elements of repression and all of that going on. Is there a legacy from all this? Well, I think that's for um, discussion. That's me. This podcast is brought to you by the University of Aberdeen.